This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. From extreme weather events to the climate summit in Glasgow to the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure deal, 2021 has been a banner year. The most fundamental change that has occurred is that people are, are now realizing the threat to their personal hopes and dreams. New reports showed the world on a path to blow past the target limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. But 2021 also showed a few glimmers of hope. We finally got this bill across the finish line and it really does represent a step change in our public commitment to many parts of the economy, but especially climate change. As 2021 comes to a close, Climate One producer Ariana Brocious and I are taking a look back at the year from a climate perspective. Hey, Ariana. Hey, Greg. Before we start, I just want to thank you for all the great work you've done this year. You've done some interviews. People have heard you on the radio show and the pod. It's great to have you on the team. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you. Well, thanks. You know, it's actually a really nice chance for me as somebody who's editing the, the show and the interviews to take a step back and reflect on what we've talked about and the people we've talked to. And so I'm pretty excited about it, too. Well, it's great to have you. And 2021 has been a crazy year. Yeah, I'm afraid we've gotten to the point where every year is kind of a crazy year now. But it did feel like this year was a turning point when climate disruption really hit home for a lot of people. Virtually every part of the country felt the effects. Some people got unprecedented heat waves. There were fires and floods. Right. And a recent poll from the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication says that for the first time, a majority of Americans say they felt personally the effects of the climate crisis in their lives. So this year, what did you personally experience? I experienced anxiety over things that happened and that didn't happen. I was worried about uh, wildfire smoke here in California, even when there were blue skies. One point I went rafting in the summer with my family in Idaho down the Salmon River, and we were driving back across Oregon. The sky was really dark because of the the bootleg fire a little south of us in Oregon. And we were drove into this county where an evacuation order had been given. And our phone started screeching saying, get out. You know, it was wild to me that, that, that somehow the cell phone company knew that we were driving into a county where an evacuation order had been issued. One thing that really was a gut punch for me uh, was the family, mother and father and, and an infant and their dog who died hiking the, in the Sierra foothills. Climate was initially suspected maybe it was algae. Investigation found out that it was dehydration. You know, people are not used to how hot it is and they didn't have enough water. Yeah, I live in Arizona, southern Arizona, and so unfortunately that does happen here every year. It's not as out of the ordinary, but to hear it happen in a place like the Sierra was was pretty surprising to me too, I think. And you know, you talked about this earlier this year in an interview you did with Kathy Boffman McLeod, director of the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center. Let's hear a bit of that. One of the misconceptions is that it's the hot places, but really it's the places least accustomed to heat who are least prepared to withstand it. And the number of days at a certain temperature threshold uh, just continues to grow. And, you know, you can look at Miami and say the number of days at um, what feels like 105 degrees Fahrenheit is growing from, I think it's 17 days to 45 days. And, you know, in the, in the climate scenarios, you see those days rising to where a third of the year people are experiencing 105 degrees. But if you live in Minnesota, you are not accustomed to anywhere near 105 degrees. And so a lot of heat... Um, 
planning and addressing extreme heat, it's about the human body, your underlying conditions, your age, the elevation, the humidity, pollution, all sorts of things factor into the way humans experience heat. An update from the USA EPA shows that heat waves in major cities occurred three times as often in the 2010s as they did in the 1960s. And, you know, heat waves are becoming more frequent. If the data is so clear and it happens, why don't we have a handle on it? Well, the data is clear that it's getting hotter and the way that our cities are built is not helping. So we have the urban heat island effect. We have asphalt that absorbs heat and then it emanates at night. We have the they call it the diurnal range, you know, the, the range of temperature from the daytime to the nighttime, it's shrinking. The human body rests and cleanses the brain at night. And when you have uh, temperatures still high at night, uh, we don't rest and we wake up tired and we make mistakes and hurt ourselves at work and things like that. I think we also don't have a handle on it because there is still this lack of data that I referenced just a minute ago uh, of really understanding, yes, it's hot, but then how does it play out? You know, we think about, well, we've read a few stories about how the airplanes in Phoenix can't fly when it's a certain high temp. And how many days do we expect that that will happen? And what is that economic impact that it has? We don't really have those numbers either. So how much does it cost to have a heat wave or to prepare for one or to respond to one? Um, those are all things that we need to to suss out. And some cities are, are prepared. You expect uh, Houston and Miami to be really hot. And you said that people are there are kind of accustomed to it. What about cities that uh, you mentioned, Minnesota, that are less accustomed to heat waves and the population is less accustomed to to living through them and knowing what to do and how to hydrate and when to go to a cooling center or what to do outside or not do outside. You're exactly right. And those populations, they need that education and they need to build that culture of preparation that we've built for hurricanes and fires. And I think that's, that's really clear on how to do that. And we think that naming and ranking heat waves is a good way to do that, to trigger those behaviors and to bring in all of those interventions that you just mentioned, some really good ones. They're just solid, smart things to do. When the UK last summer lost 2,500 people to heat, they put out a new heat health warning system and it failed because it came out too late. And so for certain people with certain medical conditions, 16 hours or 10 hours makes all the difference. And if the warning doesn't come out in time, people die. We recorded that conversation at the beginning of June, months before the Pacific Northwest saw its unprecedented heat wave where it hit 116 degrees in Portland, Oregon. They're not ready for that. Yeah, it was absurd. I mean, the temperatures were just incredible. And Kathy Buffman McLeod was exactly right. It's those areas that had been really unaccustomed to extreme heat that suffered the most. We saw that this year. Yeah, and it's not just the direct effects of heat. For every degree Celsius warmer, the air holds 7% more water, which means stronger hurricanes and unprecedented floods. Yeah, you mentioned the, the climate impacts you've been feeling. And this year in the Southwest, we had a pretty interesting summer. Last summer in 2020, we had no rain, no, none of our usual monsoon rain. This summer, we had, I think, the third wettest year on record, which was amazing on the one hand because it was great. The desert always loves getting rain. All of our washes were flowing and the vegetation was so lush. But it was also kind of scary at times because some of the storms that came seemed to me to be even more intense 
themselves than they normally are. And I wondered if that was another impact of climate where they're becoming, you know, more intense, more quick hitting. A flooding is a pretty big danger for a lot of people, too. And that also happened, ironically, or, or perhaps not, this is just the new reality we live in, in a year when we saw some of the first major cuts to uh, water supplies from the Colorado River, which impacts a huge swath of the Southwest. It's hard to get our heads around the extremes of too much and too little. And it's, it's like it's, it's hard to process all of that. Too much rain here. And then all of a sudden, yeah, it's, it's these extremes that scientists have been warning us about. And this year, we also talked about humans' relationship with wildfire and the debate over pipelines like Line 3, which despite ample opposition, did get built and put into operation this year. But, you know, our conversations weren't always about doom and gloom. We also talked about some solutions. And, for example, we had this really fascinating conversation with inventor and entrepreneur Saul Griffith. And he told us that by electrifying everything, we would only need about 40% of the total energy we consume now. That's one of those figures I've just been sharing with friends and family because I'm still amazed by that number. Me too. The idea that if we electrify everything, our homes and mobility, we can use less energy. Greg, you mentioned at the start of our conversation that for the first time in history, a majority of Americans surveyed now report being personally affected by climate disruption. So are we seeing any evidence that that awareness is translating into political action? It's certainly translating into awareness. The polls show that Democrats are getting more concerned. Unfortunately, Republicans are less concerned than they were uh, some years ago, with the caveat that it's always hard to assign direct causality. I'd say, you know, that awareness is translating into pressure on three levels, the regional, the national, and the global. You know, a great example on the regional level was Washington State, which had previously tried and failed to put a price on carbon pollution in 2016, then again in 2018, when it was defeated in part by a $30 million campaign that BP and other oil companies waged. But this year, BP and other former opponents of climate policy came on board, along with environmentalists and tribes. I asked Governor Jay Inslee why this coalition of previous foes came together to support Washington's cap and invest bill. Well, the world is changing. And thank goodness it's not changing. In one sense, it's changing too fast, which is the biological collapse of the systems we depend on as humans. So it's going way too fast that way. But it is also changing on the momentum we have to attack the first problem. And that is changing like weekly in the United States, and it's a good thing. Now, unfortunately, it has taken massive forest fires, uh, billions of, of clams and mussels being cooked in their shells, ocean acidification, sea level rise, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods in Germany and China to bring the increased public consciousness. So the public's consciousness is changing on this dramatically in the last several years. And organs of government and business are responding to that, including BP to some degree. So the, the most fundamental change that has occurred is that people are, are now realizing the threat to their personal hopes and dreams. That's the fundamental change. And the reason they are realizing that, it is no longer an abstraction. You know, in, in, in 1998 or 1999, when I invited Al Gore to come give his presentation to my colleagues, it was a graph, right? We had a graph. Now it's a picture of dead coral all around the world from warming and acidification. And, and so people are experiencing this visually and in their own lives. And that is fundamentally changing this. And that's why we have to be aggressive, assertive, 
uh, take no prisoners and persevere. And that's what we have brought to the table as well. Many people, the climate situation is so urgent that it requires bending rules, breaking norms, shaking up the status quo that rests on fossil fuel capitalism. Democracy is slow by design. And there's a group of growing group of people who think incremental change within the existing establishment is not going to get the job done. Listen, an attitude of disrupting the status quo is a necessary survival mechanism for the human species right now. We got to wake up every morning figuring out how can I disrupt the status quo? Because the status quo is deadly, it's fatal, it will destroy our economies and the biology that we exist on. So that attitude is an appropriate one. But we can get this done while still maintaining our democratic traditions. And you said earlier that BP has changed a little bit. Uh, do you welcome having oil companies, you know, on your side uh, now in this climate bill? It's quite, it strikes me as odd that, you know, oil is on board and Republicans aren't. That's an interesting picture. Uh, as Lincoln said, as our case is new, we must think anew. And yes, we should welcome people who agree with, with particular uh, strategies going forward. And BP may disagree with other ones. That should not stop us from working to pass good policies uh, in my book, it, the, the the situation is too dire not to not to welcome any effort to try to pass good climate legislation. We don't have the luxury of sort of dis dividing the world into two camps here. Right. It's the way things used to do is cut deals with people you don't agree with. Uh, people, <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> right. That's right. It's yeah. called democracy. Uh, Greg, back in 2019, Washington Governor Jay Inslee campaigned to be the Democratic nominee for president, and he campaigned as the climate candidate. His campaign then didn't really get much traction. But what of those ideas of his do you think have made it into the national discourse? Well, Inslee and to a lesser extent, Tom Steyer were driving climate issues during the campaign. Remember, we had this amazing moment where they're competing over how many trillions of dollars they were going to invest in climate, something we had never seen before. Climate had never played that level of prominence in a presidential campaign in 2012 and 16. It was basically uh, invisible during the campaign, in addition to really bringing climate to the center of the agenda and, and really getting some of those ideas and people into the Biden campaign. I think one of Inslee's lasting contributions was the brain trust from his campaign that formed Evergreen Action, a policy advocacy group that is influencing policy today, long after the presidential campaign of Jay Inslee has ended. But just as the situation in Washington state shifted enough for Inslee to get his legislation through on the state level, on the national level, we did see President Biden kicking off his term with a flurry of climate-friendly executive orders. And probably most significantly were the people he brought into his administration, really brought the A-team. Right, because personnel is policy, right? Yeah, he brought back some veterans, John Kerry, Gina McCarthy, plus new voices and players, Michael Regan, the first black man to head US EPA, and Deb Holland. Major deal, the first Native American Secretary of the Interior presiding over an agency that has done a lot of terrible things to uh, indigenous people in our history. And on the legislative front, we just saw the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Yeah, let's talk about how big of a deal this new infrastructure law could be for climate. There's still a lot more money for highways than for climate-friendly initiatives. We've got about $110 billion of new spending for highways, roads, and bridges, and only $39 billion for public transit. Right, but there's $65 billion for grid upgrades, which will help renewables, some of which will go into EVs, $7 billion for EV charging, and $47 billion for climate resilience for the first time, and $66 billion for rail. But a lot of how all this money will be spent is up to the states, so the actual impact on climate isn't baked in. 
Let's listen to a bit of our recent episode on this. You had a conversation with Carla Frisch, Principal Deputy Director of the Office of Policy at the U.S. Department of Energy, Sasha Mackler, Executive Director of the Energy Project at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and Beth Osborne, Director of Transportation for America. Right. I started by asking Sasha Mackler, how big a deal is the long-awaited Infrastructure Act? This is a really big deal, not only for energy and climate, but for the infrastructure system and for the larger, for the economy generally here in the U.S. We've been waiting for, I would say, more than 20 years for an infrastructure bill. It seems like every week has been infrastructure week for a very long time. And we finally got this bill across the finish line. And it really does represent a step change in our public commitment to um, many parts of the economy, but especially for climate change. Beth Osborne, you issued a statement after passage of the Infrastructure Act saying, quote, it will fail to produce meaningful shifts on climate and equity. Why do you say that? Well, the change in the bill on the vehicle side is is wonderful and exciting, but it's very status quo on the transportation program. It has taken a decades-old transportation program that's produced very poor results in in both equity and climate, but also in safety, in terms of building local economies, in terms of dividing usually black and brown communities, in terms of giving people equitable access to jobs and services, uh, in terms of costing people a lot of money. It's performed very poorly in all of those areas, and we're hoping for a different result from basically the same programs. Now, that's going to depend on exactly how aggressive USDOT is using in using their uh, administrative capacity and and uh, authority, and it's also going to depend on how much each of the fifty states wishes to change their behavior and investment. Okay, so yeah, states get a lot of say in this. Uh, so, Carla, I recognize you are with the Department of Energy, not the Department of Transportation, but can you respond to what Beth says there? One thing Beth is pointing out is this is one step of investment. So we've got the bipartisan infrastructure law, which has passed and been signed by the president, and we are very excited about. And then the second piece is the Build Back Better Act, which just passed out of the House. And that includes additional investments. But today, I think we're talking about the bipartisan infrastructure law. And I will point out, it makes the largest federal investment in public transit in history and the largest federal investment in passenger rail since the creation of Amtrak, and really significant investments in EV, both the charging and also at DOE on the supply chain for electric vehicles. Beth Osborne, your organization says that states often choose to spend federal dollars on expansion over highway repair. It's more appealing for a politician to cut a ribbon or point to a new new highway than it is to uh, a repaired bridge or perhaps a, a, you know, a, a scheduling system for a transit agency. Is this time any different? Is there going to be a bias toward expansion over repair? I certainly think we can all hope that everybody woke up the morning of the signing of the bill and was transformed by the hope for the future. But in my experience, they need a little bit of a push in that direction. And this bill offers none. In fact, uh, this effort rejected an effort on the House side to say that before a state could build new capacity, they had to demonstrate they had a plan for maintaining it along with the rest of their system. Uh, 
we require that on the transit side. On the highway side, we have, and we continue to allow a state to say, we have no idea how we'll maintain it, and we're going to give up on other pieces of infrastructure. And uh, that has been maintained. The fact of the matter is that this and approach to transportation will invest a historic amount of money in transit and a historic amount in highways in a 1950s approach has never produced the results that we are hoping for. We really need to invest according to a goal or an outcome, not just according to pouring amounts of money in individual pots. That's not how people travel, and the, and the, the climate gods will not care that this was a historic amount of transit funding if the historic amount of highway funding results in greater emissions. This is Climate One, and we're reviewing the year in climate. Coming up, we'll dig into what happened on the international level. I feel very positive about the outcomes from Glasgow. Uh, it's never enough. I think there will be a lot of people who are disappointed in some aspects of it, but good progress was made. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and today I'm joined by Climate One producer Ariana Brocious. 2021 actually started on a pretty positive note for climate. Joe Biden rejoined the Paris Agreement as he had promised on day one of his presidency, and that was a good moment. Right, and we'll dig into the significance of that in a moment when we talk about COP26, the international climate event of the year. But I think what really sets the stage for that summit in Glasgow was the report known as AR6, or Assessment Report 6, which the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released at the beginning of August. Yeah, this is the report that probably a lot of people heard about because UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called it Code Red for Humanity. And the report is pretty bleak. It says that sea level rise will be worse than previously expected, adding about a half a foot or more to earlier projections. And in all of the five scenarios that they studied, the Earth reaches the threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming by 2040. That's only 19 years from now. Yeah, and despite the grim news and screaming headlines about that code red for humanity, those findings didn't reach everyone. The week that report came out, I interviewed Rich Tao of the Swing Voter Project and asked him if swing voters are hearing those alarm bells. They're really not, Greg. And the focus groups that we did on August 10th certainly confirmed that. We had 13 Trump to Biden voters, people who voted for Trump in 2016 and then Biden in 2020. And only three of them had heard the news, which had come out the day before, about the IPCC report. So for us, it was, there was not deep penetration into their psyche about what was happening in what seemed to me to be pretty major news that got a huge amount of airplay and print play the day before. They seem to be missing some of the, the biggest news stories that are out there. Um, and last month, for example, I'd asked about what was happening with the transportation bill winding its way through Congress. And, and most of them hadn't heard that there was such a bill going through Congress. So for me, this becomes sort of one sort of dispiriting conversation after the next, where you realize that certain things don't get through, but certain things do get through. For example, all the respondents a month ago, back in July, knew that, um, uh, that a building had collapsed in Surfside, Florida. So that, that hadn't escaped their notice at all. But some of the big longer term issues, the things that have great political relevance, like how many, how many trillions of dollars Congress is going to spend on, on, on infrastructure, for example, 
they're not paying close attention. Yeah, TV's drawn to those dramatic stories. In the focus group, you played a two-minute clip from the CBS Evening News that highlighted the recent UN report as code red for humanity. Let's hear that clip. Scientists say the planet is warming faster than at any time in at least 2,000 years. Climate change is a problem that is here now. Nobody's safe, and it's getting worse faster. Clip goes on with greater detail, laying out the evidence. Where first of all, Rich, this was on mainstream network news, yet it seems like uh, very few people knew about it. Yeah, we had people say, for example, well, I don't have time to watch the, the nightly news. I have people who said they heard little strands of this information here or there, but they hadn't heard a report like this one that pulled it all together. So to me, I think that's also part of it, is that they're hearing individual notes, but they're not hearing the whole song. Right. I, there, there was one, one respondent who said he had heard about drought in the West, but he hadn't heard about floods in the East. They hadn't kind of put together the whole, whole country. Um, one of your panelists, Greg L. from Pennsylvania, said he saw the headline, but intentionally did not want to learn more. Let's listen. Come to think of it, I did see that on CNN, um, and it, it did sound pretty bleak. It did kind of give some hope, but it sounded like we were far, we were closer to the the pivot point than we thought. It's accelerating more rapidly. So I didn't get, I didn't want to read the article. Didn't want to read the article, Greg. The news was too bleak. <laughs> too bleak, yeah. With all that's going on, I don't need any more. <laughs> so let's get to that. The, how do emotions play into news that gets through and what doesn't? One of the questions I thought was, was uh, well, the set of answers to the questions I thought were most interesting had to do with sort of emotionally how they deal with this. And I asked people which of three categories they fell into, whether the, hearing this kind of news caused them to want to take action. And four of them said that. Three of them said it immobilized them, that they just found it so overwhelming they couldn't react. And then six of them said they basically avoid it. So you got four out of 13 basically who are responding. And by the way, the way those people respond is to find plants they don't have to water as much in their garden, buy more sustainable products, not um, uh, buy things with palm oil, for example. I mean, this is what, those are the examples we heard, and, and recycling, of course. Recycling always comes up as the way people contribute and try to, to deal with, with climate change. So again, you look at the totality of what people do or say they do or are willing to do, and frankly, in my estimation, it doesn't add up to a whole lot. And, you know, I think a lot of people, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum, can relate to one of those emotional reactions, right? Especially feeling immobilized. I think that's pretty common when you get overwhelmed by all the climate news. So, Greg, how much do you think what swing voters pay attention to really matters in the fight against the climate crisis? Well, I think there's a real disconnect. On the one hand, whom we elect really matters. Those swing voters have a disproportionate impact on our national politics. We have the technology to dramatically cut carbon emissions, and yet the popular will doesn't translate, isn't reflected in congressional actions. You know, people support climate action, but that's not happening in Congress, which is heavily influenced by fossil fuel interests who are slowing things down. We have a cash and carry Congress. On the other hand, business and industry are moving faster than governments, and all those actions matter far more than whether we use plastic straws or recycle the cheapest electricity on the planet these days comes from wind and solar. Renewables are winning. They're no longer uh, more expensive than, than conventional electricity. So the markets are very powerful and moving. Right. Domestic government is not really moving as fast as a lot of people would like. 
And that's true on the international level as well. In November, we saw the 26th convening of the Conference of Parties, known as COP26. This year it was in Glasgow. And let's listen back to a bit of your conversation with Jiang Lin, an adjunct professor at the University of California, Berkeley, who focuses on China's energy and climate policy, and Albert Chung, head of global analysis at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. I feel very positive about the outcomes from Glasgow. Uh, it's never enough. Um, I think there will be a lot of people who are disappointed in some aspects of it, but good progress was made. I would say if you zoom out a little bit, we now have commitments that could potentially get us on a track towards 1.7, 1.8 degrees Celsius of, of global warming at the most optimistic end of the estimates if all of the pledges are, are delivered on time and in full, um, including the long range runs out to 2050 and 2060. And that's that's not enough to get to 1.5, but it is a, a whole lot better than we were a couple of years ago, um, a little bit better than we were two weeks ago. And I think something that should not be taken lightly because that, that is a lot of work that's gone into those negotiations to make that happen. And importantly, one key provision that says that we're all gonna come back in a year's time and do it again, and look at our commitments again and see if we can raise ambition again next year towards 1.5. I think that gives some hope that we can get an even better outcome in the next 12 months. Right. The countries will be meeting in Egypt next year rather than waiting for five years, shortening those uh, check-in timeframes. Zhang Li, what do you think as the big takeaway, the outcome from Glasgow? Well, I think COP26 made significant progress towards addressing the urgency of climate change. However, there's still a major gap left to fill. As Albert recognized already, if you add a long-term target, it might get us to 1.8 degrees Celsius. However, if you count the near-term actions by 2030, we're probably at 2.4 degrees Celsius. So that's a major, major gap. However, the, the COP26 does recognize the need for ambitious action in the next decades. So we're not only looking at long-term target towards 2050, 2060, et cetera, but rather we have to cut the mission by almost by half by 2030. I think that's an extremely uh, important advance. And also uh, I think COP26 enhanced our goal to hold down to 1.5 degrees instead of a weaker language in the Paris Agreement. I think that's really important and recognize what science tells us to do. And that's the minimum threshold we have to hold to avoid uh, sort of disastrous consequence of climate change. Uh, uh, just another sort of signal to that is, even though there was a last minute so-called watering down of the language on coal power, but nonetheless, this is the beginning of the end of coal power. I'd like to play two clips from the conference. First, the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Two degrees is a death sentence for the people of Antigua and Barbuda, for the people of the Maldives, for the people of Dominica and Fiji for the people of Kenya and Mozambique, and yes, for the people of Samoa and Barbados. We do not want that dreaded death sentence. And we've come here today to say, try harder, try harder. And here's Ugandan activist, Vanessa Nakate. I hope you can appreciate that where I live, a two degree world, means that a billion people will be affected by extreme heat stress 
in a two degree Celsius world, some places in the global south will regularly reach a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees Celsius. At that temperature, the human body cannot cool itself by sweating. At that temperature, even healthy people sitting in the shed will die within six hours. So really powerful human statements of what's really at stake, you know, 1.5 or 2 degrees are not some abstract number. So Albert, despite progress being made, what was it like there to be with so much at stake and hearing statements like those? These conferences of the parties, as they're called, these COPs, are really unlike any other conferences that, that you know that I, for one, attend. You know, normally um, we're doing industry gatherings, thinking about how to deploy clean energy, how to deploy electric vehicles and hydrogen. At COP, it is it is a, a, a rainbow. Um, it is an incredibly diverse um, place to go, where you have people from every country, all demographics, all ages, civic society, activists, NGOs, and, and business, of course, and it is, for better or for worse, this incredible show and, and circus where the spotlight is on the global climate community just for those two weeks. And first of all, you, you cannot but feel energized and feel an incredible sense of purpose when you're there. Um, but secondly, I think that that theater, those incredibly powerful speeches that, that, you've just, that we've just heard, are a really important part of the process. Um, because um, the way that the Paris Agreement is structured, the, the way that these talks are structured, is through um, this process of kind of moral pressure on countries to do the right thing. Powerful words really do matter because that's what motivates leaders. They don't want to be seen as the, the bad guy in the room. They don't want to go back to their country and, and face their, their people having been the bad guy in the room. So I, um, I, I think those words really, really matter and really resonate. And even with the good news that came out of COP, which Albert Chung and Zhang Lin mentioned, it was largely viewed as a disappointment by many people. And we should point out that even though the U.S. was back at the table, political pressures at home meant it couldn't commit to the coal or EV pledges that were made by other countries. Right, because Biden couldn't get his packages through Congress in, in time and there's domestic resistance. There's real questions about whether the U.S. is really a climate leader and for how long it will be a climate leader. I think there's a lot of uh, people put a lot of hope on these uh, cops. These Glasgow summits think they're going to save the earth. And, you know, they're just one avenue of change. Yeah, though, I will say one of the things that strikes me about the COP26 conversations is the talk of countries increasing their pledges. Um, but there's a big difference between pledges and action. So, yes, the nations of the world agreed to a 30% cut in methane emissions by 2030. That's a big deal. But even if that's achieved, that only shaves 0.2 degrees off of our somewhat bleak future. And I hear Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley saying that a two-degree rise is a death sentence for the most vulnerable countries. So by not committing to stronger measures... Did the less vulnerable nations effectively sign somewhat of a death sentence for the most vulnerable? Certainly things in the global south and the developing countries are, are looking bad. They are more vulnerable and there is not a lot of uh, generosity or compassion, you know, not only for in the United States for foreign aid to helping other countries. We're living very much in a kind of me first, you know, our country first political context. There's not a lot of collaboration and we don't seem to be learning the lesson that we're all in this together. Whether it's COVID, we need to vaccinate the world and it's climate, we need to protect the world. We're connected. And this year we saw at COP 
for the first time, really talked about in a significant way, this idea of loss and damage. Yeah, previous pledges of money to be transferred from the north to south was framed as assistance with mitigation and adaptation, but loss and damage payments would be in addition to that. And that's important because, as Vanessa Nakate so aptly put it, you can't adapt to lost cultures and you can't adapt to starvation. Yeah, she's amazing. And Vanessa is so powerful on this. And it makes sense. If you spill sewage into your neighbor's property, you're expected to pay for the damage and loss that you caused. It didn't make it into the final text of this year's agreement, but momentum is building to address the responsibility of rich countries for damaging poorer countries. That's what would happen with cities and states and individuals and companies. So I expect we'll be hearing a lot more about this at next year's climate summit in Egypt. And the loss and damage conversation on the global level also mirrors what we talked about a lot on this show this year, which is climate justice. Yeah, when we talk about extreme heat, that affects people of color more. When we talk about infrastructure, which communities are helped and which are left behind. We talk about geoengineering, we consider who gets to decide on the terms of the debate. Is it framed in a scientific, technocratic way that, that uh, you know, rich countries look at it? Even when we talk about climate anxiety and climate-induced trauma, I recognize, I've learned from talking to indigenous and people of color that their experience of compounding trauma began with colonialism and enslavement that began centuries ago. And only recently are white people like you and me coming to recognize this and feel it and sense it as real. And even when we talk about diet or access to nature, our society is profoundly unequal. Totally. And I particularly appreciate you highlighting that in your interview with Amanda Machado, a writer and facilitator whose work explores how race, gender, and identity affect the way that we experience the outdoors. Let's listen to a bit of that. White folks control 98% of land in the U.S. They own 98% of land in the U.S. Um, They control 80% of the wealth. They're over 90% of the CEOs of companies that are in the outdoor industry and the environmentalism uh, movement as well. So when you have white dominance to that extent, um, then it makes sense that that is what's, that's the narrative that's centered um, in what we hear about the outdoors, what we hear about the environmentalism movement, um, and what we think of as an outdoorsy person or what an environmentalist looks like. So to me, I think that's where I've become really passionate about the work I do of forcing those organizations and that industry to start confronting white supremacy in a way that I don't think... uh, they've wanted to for a really long time. I think they, um, you know, a lot of times what I get the impression of when I do work with these organizations is that there's a way that we can kind of avoid that subject. But to me, I feel like we cannot really hold ourselves accountable to the outdoors and to the environment unless we're addressing that first. It kind of becomes the core of, of all the other issues that we're, that we're dealing with. Right. So how do those kinds of imagery and narratives then discourage people of color from taking part in wilderness activities? Well, I think what I've noticed is that, you know, if you can't see yourself in those spaces, um, then it's hard to feel invited or welcome in that movement. And I think the other part that we really need to address is that there's, you know, a long history of trauma and oppression um, that connect the outdoors to people of color. We see this with Black folks in slavery, Indigenous folks in colonization. Um, As a Latinx person, I think a lot about how growing up um, farming and being in touch with land and being outside was associated with migrant work. And that was the kind of work that, you know, was the stereotype of the Latinx community that a lot of folks were trying to get themselves out of and show that we were 
are, you know, educated and outside of that kind of realm of labor. Um, so when we have those associations in our in our history and in our ancestry, then it's hard to unpack all that and then reconnect with the outdoors in a way that doesn't feel oppressive and in a way that actually feels liberating. And, you know, couple that with how the the history of that still lingers in outdoor spaces to this day. I mean, what I think about a lot is Oregon is what was the only state that explicitly excluded Black folks from entering the state of Oregon when it was founded. And in, in its constitution, that was it was a white supremacist state. Colorado had Ku Klux Klan members all throughout its government um, when it was first founded. The highest hate crimes are still and often in places that are outdoorsy, right? Idaho, Montana, Wyoming have some of the highest rates of hate crimes for queer folks, for people of color um, in the United States. So when you think about that long history, the fact that public pools, public beaches, public parks were all segregated until the Civil Rights Act, it becomes even more clear that, you know, people of color were just never welcoming these spaces. That trauma still exists. And unless we confront it, I think it's really hard to re-engage with the outdoors in a way that feels healthy. I know for me, when I grew up, I grew up in Florida and it was just pretty much standard that any you know time I went to a park or an outdoor space, there were Confederate flags all along the highway and all along the houses leading up to that space. So to me, that was just always part of the deal. I kind of accepted that to be outdoors and to share my love of the outdoors with other folks meant I had to access some of the most racist places in the United States. But I think that's a hard bargain to make and a hard bargain to ask folks of color to make. And I think that's what, what we're grappling with right now. You're listening to a Climate One conversation reviewing this year in climate. Coming up, we revisit conversations with UN Climate Envoy Mark Carney, Technot Han collaborator Sister True Dedication, and climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe. We pick ourselves up and we keep on going because what is at stake is too valuable to lose. It's not our planet itself. It will orbit the sun long after we're gone. What's at stake is literally us. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and today I'm joined by my colleague and producer, Ariana Brocious, as we review the top climate stories of the year. We talked earlier in the program about government action and inaction on the state, federal, and international levels. But this year, we also saw significant moments in the private sector, especially with major auto manufacturers pledging to stop making fossil fuel burning cars in the next 10 to 15 years. How big of a sea change do you think that is? This is huge. I think it's removed some of the political opposition to climate policy that we've seen in recent years. And remember that the makers of gasoline cars would not be doing this without the innovation and disruption brought by Tesla. It's the sixth most valuable company in the world. Just 10 years ago, Tesla was near death. It was barely making any cars. It survived thanks to a federal loan that was part of the 2009 stimulus package. The move of Ford, GM, and VW and other automakers to EVs has ripple effects throughout other industries. Obviously, the fossil fuel industry doesn't want to see this. But I talked with Mark Carney, the former central banker for both Canada and the UK, who is now working to decarbonize the global economy. We talked about climate action and finance and about the impact of three insurgent directors being recently elected to the board of ExxonMobil. One of the things I thought is... Uh there's a return to shareholder value. If you Google um, engine number one Exxon mm -hmm. presentation, mm -hmm. so this is the activist investor uh, who uh, started this process to get those directors elected. Uh, there's an 80 plus page presentation which goes through basically the outlook for value creation and the core thesis of it backed up with uh, some 
you know, series of analysis and numbers is that the company Exxon had not been investing enough in the fuels of the future, uh, or the energies of the future. And that plus the prospect of stranding of assets meant that it was destroying value and that it needed this strategic change. It's an interesting alignment. I mean, a very important situation, but it's a it's an alignment of value in the future, value more con- more consistent. I don't want to oversell it. More consistent with sustainability, uh, as opposed to value in the past, which was the existing strategy the company was pursuing. Right. So it's about money rather than future. I'd like to play a clip from CNBC's Jim Cramer and get your reaction on the other side. I'm done with fossil fuels. I mean, big big pension funds saying, "Listen, we're not going to own them anymore." Uh, it you think that's the biggest thing are. holding these these guys back, and not necessarily yes. just oil production yes. part here in the United States? Absolutely. Look at BP; it's a solid yield, uh-huh. uh, very good. Look at Chevron buying back five billion dollars worth of stock. Nobody cares, and this has to do with new kinds of money managers who, frankly, just want to. Uh, uh, appease younger people who believe that you can't ever make a fossil fuel company sustainable. We're in the death knell phase. That's quite a statement from a leading figure on Wall Street, CNBC, to say, you know, and he sounds bitter about this change, and he points to millennial money managers and investors in the death knell phase. Your reaction? Uh, well, it's interesting. I hadn't heard it. Uh he often sounds. He often sounds bitter, though. That's I wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> right. He's, he's a he's a crank. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, he has that tone. Uh, bitter, angry about something. Even when he seems to be making money, he's angry about it. Uh, but um, no, it is quite. It's it's uh, it's quite instructive. I I, w- I would parse out a couple of things. One is that uh, I, I wouldn't put this down to uh, to use the term woke capitalism. Uh, I'd put it down to. Uh, you know, an assessment of where the world is going or where the world needs to go, and a more extreme section of um, of, of the of, of the economy or a section of the economy that isn't moving fast enough. Now, one of the challenges I think we have is that within the energy sector, there are companies that are transitioning. There are companies that are trying to take now finally a significant mm-hmm. proportion of their cash flows and do what Engine Number One wanted wants Exxon to do, and these new directors will want Exxon to do, to reinvest in uh, renewable energy and, and transition from the fuels of today to those of tomorrow. So now identifying those true examples as opposed to uh, niche, you know, kind of trophy uh, uh, investments that that are intended to uh, appease uh, this issue. Greenwashing. There's re- greenwashing yeah, going as opposed on. To, yeah. As opposed to, yeah, as opposed to truly transform. Uh, that's what uh, that's what uh, investors have to make a, a judgment about. Uh, so I wouldn't I wouldn't have the blanket. I'm done with the entire sector any more than I would in the steel sector, which of course is hugely polluting and emitting. But it will be a period of time will run. There are certain companies that are investing huge amounts in greening steel. Uh, and we need a system. We need objective judgments about who's actually doing it, but we need a system that gets capital to those companies so that they can actually make those investments and takes capital away or changes the pricing, at least, of the companies that uh, aren't doing anything or aren't moving fast enough. So, Greg, do these conversations with industry leaders give you hope that the private sector can do what the public sector can't? 
I'm decidedly schizophrenic. When I hear things like that, I see lots of good things happening, well-intentioned people, corporations are acting in their self-interest, and those interests are starting to align with lower carbon because their shareholders and their employees are forcing them to go in that direction. I also am deeply skeptical about the rules of capitalism themselves and, and pushing pollution into the commons, privatizing the gains. And I have some deep growing concerns whether capitalism will reform itself in time. So I, sometimes I see hope with corporate action. And sometimes I think the system is deeply broken, creating so much wealth disparity, so much pollution. And I doubt that it will, will reform itself in time. And speaking of hope, one of my favorite Climate One interviews that we did this year was the one with Catherine Hayhoe, whose latest book is called Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. And I'd say that this is a must-listen Climate One episode for anyone who wants to be better at talking about climate, which is hugely important. But what I'd like to play today is how she responded to your question about hope. Catherine, I want to ask you, your hope seems to be authentic. And I'm wondering, though, sometimes, let's be honest, that the climate is going to continue to change during our lifetime. Um, it's going to continue to get darker. The science tells us there's already a lot of momentum built up in the system. So how do you acknowledge that it's going to get worse during our lifetimes? We can do a lot to reduce the harm and still maintain that hope. Do you have to like, do you embrace that inevitability and that darkness to get through to genuine hope? You have to. What I've learned is that whether you go to theology, philosophy, psychology, or science, hope begins in a dark place. Hmm. Hope begins with acknowledging just how bad it is. We're not talking about a sort of a Pollyanna hope or a bury your head in the sand hope or a cultivate a positive attitude and everything will work out okay hope. We're talking about real hope, muscular hope, rational hope. It begins by looking our crisis right in the face and recognizing it is really bad. And as we talked about at the beginning, it's probably worse than scientists say. And there is no guarantee of a positive outcome. In fact, a negative outcome is more likely than a positive one. But hope is that faint, small, bright light at the end of the dark tunnel that we head for with all our might and all our strength. And when we get dragged down, when we get discouraged, when we get anxious and depressed, and believe me, that happens to me too, we take a breath, we fix our eyes on that hope by going out and looking for what someone else is doing or by making a choice to do something myself. And then we pick ourselves up and we keep on going because what is at stake is too valuable to lose. It's not our planet itself. It will orbit the sun long after we're gone. What's at stake is literally us. So I, I think of Christiana Figueres, who of course shepherded the Paris Agreement. If anybody could be hopeless and despondent and frustrated, it's her. Yet she wrote this amazing hopeful book of what our lives would look like by 2030 with climate impacts. But if we had transitioned to clean energy, walkable cities, clean air, cheap electricity, ample food for all. And she said, look at this amazing vision of the future. The biggest lesson we learned in 2030 looking back was that we were only ever as doomed as we believed ourselves to be. That's such a powerful line. Greg, listening back to that a few months later, 
What do you think about it? I mean, Catherine acknowledges that a negative outcome on climate is more likely than a positive one, yet she still finds this deep reservoir of hope. Right. And we've seen in history that sometimes the, during uh, the biggest battles or sieges, people find purpose and, and a lot of, lot of motivation uh, when times are tough. For me, I think the question is, how do we balance the psychological need for accepting the world's situation with the urgency to do something? And researchers will say that doing something makes us feel better. So action can induce hope. It's not that I need hope to act. If you act, you will be hopeful and you'll, you'll feel better. I struggle with the line between acceptance that the climate is going to get worse in our lifetime. We're not going to solve it. We're not going to fix it. That's just a fact. And, and resignation is something that I don't want to do. It's something I discussed at length with Sister True Dedication, a Zen Buddhist nun and editor of Thich Nhat Hanh's latest book, Zen and the Art of Saving the the planet. Internationally renowned Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh was a refugee from the Vietnam War when Martin Luther King nominated him for a Nobel Peace Prize for his work to end that war. A few years later, he actively worked to rescue other Vietnamese refugees. I asked Sister True Dedication how that experience shaped his understanding of what he calls awakened action. I'd like to end today's show looking back at the year in climate with a section of that interview. I think around the time when Thai was calling for peace. Uh, so uh, we call Thich Nhat Hanh Thai, it means teacher. So when he left Vietnam to call for peace, and actually that's what led to his exile, that he had dared to call for peace. And it was while he was traveling the world calling for peace that he became aware of the situation of the boat people. At the time he reflected something like this, he said, if compassion doesn't lead to action, how can you call it compassion? So there's really this sense in the whole of Thai's life that compassion has to be expressed in the way we live our life, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we engage. So compassion isn't something that you cultivate in the sitting meditation um, position in a monastery or a temple, but it's something that should really be embodied with how we spend our time and our energy. Right. So if action is healing, how does that apply to climate? So for Thai, what contemplation, mindfulness and meditation have to do with the climate crisis is actually in this moment, we're all being called to a much deeper, braver awakening that hasn't happened yet. We have to really wake up to the severity of the situation and change our whole way of, of seeing. And for Thai, perhaps we could call it you know, insight. We we all need to get a certain insight, and it's the insight that we don't have, and that's why that you know it's so difficult to take action. I often encounter people in the climate conversation who are so scared and so worried about the urgency that we must act quickly. I think people are so scared; they think that any action is good action. And other people will say, no, we need to slow down and think about more intentional action. But that seems hard to do when literally the earth, our home is on fire. I think even as Buddhists, we acknowledge the urgency of the situation. So clearly it is urgent and Thai also really acknowledge this. The question is, how do we respond to that urgency? And how can we get the strength we need, the insight we need to not panic? And I think what happens to a lot of us in the urgency is 
we're in a, a, a knee-jerk mode, in a reactive um, state in our own lives. And we just really have to remember that the activists, the scientists, the people who are working at the forefront of tackling the climate crisis, we're all human beings. And that urgency, we can't live in that state of heightened arousal. You know, it just can destroy our body and mind. So we are also part of the earth. And so we want to, to contribute in such a way that is sustainable and healthy for ourselves while we act urgently. And the power of Zen and the power of mindfulness is that it it roots us in the present moment so we can be alert to what is going on. We can be responsive. We can be the master of our mind and awareness in any given situation. So we can really have the present moment as the ground for our urgent action. And that is action taken with clarity, with courage, with solidity, with freedom, and not with panic. And more deeply, actually, to lean into that fear and despair and accept that it is very possible that we won't manage to turn this around. There's a certain acceptance that can come with that and a certain what Thai called, um, you know, peace and freedom. And it's like, all right, well, what can we do anyway? <laughs> you know, we've got nothing to lose because everything you know, may, the, the odds may be stacked against us. And, and that can liberate us, I think, from the, from the panic and the anxiety to have a kind of peace, of freedom. And then all the action can come from love. We're not measuring the consequences of our action. We're just human beings, part of the, all the species on this beautiful planet, trying our best. On this Climate One, Ariana Brocious and I have been talking about this year in climate. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. There were many other great episodes we didn't have time to highlight. So subscribe to Climate One wherever you get your podcasts and find all of our full episodes. Talking about climate can be difficult, dark, scary, exciting, interesting. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Ariana Brocious is our producer and audio editor. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.